The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 25, where we're going to be reading portions of various chapters. When we had a snow or flash freeze day the other week, we lost one of our evenings in the book of Exodus, and we already had pretty big chunks at the end of the book, and we're compelled by the fact that as of the beginning of March, we have guest preachers Sunday evenings for some time as the associate pastors are, will be preaching in the mornings. But it left, it left me with a newly assigned job of preaching on about 13 chapters of the book of Exodus. And when Chris said, what was I going to do with that? I was said, I'm thinking about just reading them and saying, amen. That would have been easy. But the focus of these chapters we're overviewing briefly this evening is the tabernacle of God, which is a beautiful subject, an amazing subject, and that could be studied in much greater depth, obviously. One commentator noted that the Bible takes two chapters to describe, describe God creating the universe, but I think it was 13 chapters to describe how the tabernacle was to be built. Isn't that interesting? So there's important meaning in all that the tabernacle and the various parts of the tabernacle signify, and we want to try to look at that. And I want to um, read portions of it and then talk about parts that we haven't read as well. So let us give attention to God's word, beginning at Exodus 25 at verse 1. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat's skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing, oil for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And then as you just page with me, you see the rest of chapter 5 talks about the ark the table, the golden lampstand. Chapter 26 goes more specifically into the frame of the curtains and the structure of the tabernacle itself. And then chapter 27 is the bronze altar, the court, the oil for the lamp. And chapters 28 and 29 have to do with the priests, which we will look at again in more depth, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Then chapter 30 is the altar of incense, and the bronze basin and the anointing oil and incense. And then 
We saw something of uh, chapter 32, and then I'm skipping ahead to chapter 39, where I want to just read two verses uh, that are very similar that might be called grammatically or in terms of literature an inclusio. Um, Chapter 39, verse 32 says, after the um, skilled workers made all of these components of the tabernacle. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And then verse verse 43, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord has commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them picking up this theme that you read throughout these chapters, that God had very specific directions, and the Israelites did exactly as God had directed Moses. And then finally, chapter 40 shows us the tabernacle finally being set up in all its components and parts for the first time. You must just get a sense of what the, what the Israelites were thinking as they saw finally after all this work and all this time here it was, and they, they um, put it all together, put it up, and we see in verse 34 what happens. Then the cloud, that's the cloud of God's glory, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Imagine what that would have been like to see that. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. The tabernacle, the place where, in a sense, earth touches heaven, the dwelling place of God on earth. And back in chapter 25, the phrase that is used in verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, the word mishkan is used. It's from the word shakan to dwell, the tent where God lived. And thus, all the components of its construction revealed God's character. And these components and its construction also showed what was required for sinners to meet a holy God. Why should a New Testament believer study the tabernacle? Well, because it's part of God's holy and inspired word, but also in addition to learn what it teaches us about God. We must learn what is the meaning and symbolism associated with its parts. The tabernacle was designed to teach heavenly realities. The the book of Hebrews calls it a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. 
It says in Hebrews 8, 5, God instructed Moses saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was given a very specific pattern by God. The tabernacle, you might say, was a microcosm of the universe. Inside the tabernacle was heaven because God dwelt there. And outside was earth with God at the center of it all. The heart of the tabernacle was the holy of holies, as we'll see, where God reigned in glory. The tabernacle, in turn, was at the heart of Israel with all 12 tribes surrounding it in their formation. And Israel was the heart of the world, the centerpiece in God's plan for saving the nations. The tabernacle was the most important place in the world, we might say. In a sense, heaven on earth. The point was not that somehow God could be contained within the four walls of this tent. No, the tabernacle was set up like heaven to show that God rules over both heaven and earth. My first point tonight is to do a brief overview of the symbolism of the most um, basic elements of the tabernacle. And if you have a study Bible with you and you've got a page with the tabernacle kind of drawn for you, or if you're a child and your parent has that, you might want to look there and just be looking at that page while I talk about these parts. It's, it's easy to, easier to do this visually, but I'm going to try to do it auditorially. Um, but think about this. First of all, the, the layout overall, where what we have is a flat rectangular tent that is 15 feet by 45 feet. Of course, in the Bible, it was measured by cubits. So I'm approximating here. And that tent has two rooms divided by a veil. The inner room, which many of you are familiar with, is the Holy of Holies, which in its dimensions is a perfect cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet high. And in the room on the other side of the veil, the holy place, the front room, so to speak, which is a rectangle 15 feet by 30 feet. And so you have this two-part tent, and around that inner tent, an outer curtain that's supported by wooden frames, which created a courtyard. And the whole complex, so to speak, was 150 feet by 75 feet. So you get some sense of its size. At its longest, it was half of a football field. So that gives you a sense for that. Now, inside that layout, we can next note the curtains. In chapter 26, verse 1, we see them the beginning of the description of how these are to be made. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains. And here we find out why the people were called to give certain things because you see these coming up in the construction. Ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. And the chapter goes into great detail about these curtains which make up the tent of the tabernacle proper and then the outside courtyard curtains. We see this described as expensive fabric adorned with 
apparently stitching that looks like cherubim, mighty angelic beings. And we read on that this beautiful curtain was protected by outside, an outside layer or layers of goat skin and ram skins to be protected from the elements and so on. Now, these curtains, as we think of the tent with the veil and the outer courtyard, before we go on about the other elements, we know two functions of these curtains. One was to separate the people from God's holy presence, the danger of unauthorized access to the consuming holiness of God. And so they function as boundaries very similar to, remember, in the giving of the law when God is meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai and the people are gathered at the base of the mountain and Moses is instructed to put up a a boundary so that people know, do not cross that boundary, don't touch the mountain, or if anybody touched the mountain, human being or animal, that person had to be killed because of the holiness of God. And so it was these curtains were to provide boundaries because God's dwelling place was holy and awesome. But also the tabernacle with its curtains and so forth, the way it was set up symbolized a way of approach and access to God. Worshippers could enter the courtyard through this outer gate And in that courtyard, they could confess their sins. They could offer sacrifices by means of the priest. They could pray to God. The priest could carry their petitions into the holy place. And so priests could go into the holy place for certain ceremonies and so forth. But once a year, the high priest could enter the holy of holies by the blood of atonement for sin. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just talking about the curtains there. Now we move to, we're going to go from the inside out, so to speak. Think about the holiest place, the holy of holies. What was there? The Ark of the Covenant was there. Um, That's described in chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. I'm not going to read all that. But really, the Ark was the centerpiece of the tabernacle. The ark itself was like a chest, and inside that chest was the two two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments and the pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. And then on top of the ark, and, and distinguished from the ark, was the mercy seat. Of course, all this was covered in gold. The mercy seat of God, uh, seen as the royal footstool of of the Lord and where the priest would come in and sprinkle the blood on that mercy seat. And on, on both sides of that mercy seat uh, was a cherubim with their wings symbolizing the angelic guardians of God's throne. You've probably seen representations of that. And so the ark was there in the holiest place and separating, separating it from the holy place the larger room in front, was this veil, another special curtain that was hung. It was 15 feet high, separating these two rooms. And according to the Jewish Talmud, the veil was more than four inches thick and took more than 100 priests to move it from place to place. That was some curtain. Just think of that. 
And then we move out to the holy place where in that room, a little bit bigger rectangular room, was the table of the presence with the special showbread. And that table and the bread signified communion with God, that God is our life, that God provides for us. And also in that room was the lampstand. You've seen Jewish lampstands signifying God as our light. And then also in that holy place was the altar of incense, signifying the prayers of God's people arising as sweet-smelling incense to God. So that's the holy place. And then further out, beyond the tabernacle proper, so to speak, is the courtyard where there was the large bronze altar. And that bronze altar was very central in offering atoning sacrifices for sin. And the blood of the sacrifice would be brought in to the mercy seat and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And also in the courtyard was the bronze basin or what's been called the sea, that large round container containing water for ceremonial cleansing. Reminds us of the ceremonial cleansing from sin. Now I've just briefly gone over these things to give you these primary elements. But what does all of this teach us? Well, as I've said, the tabernacle was a piece of heaven on earth. God had said in chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Heaven is where God is. So when God came to live with his people, he brought heaven down with him in this sense. And we see how the Ark of the Covenant represented God's throne The figures on its cover represented the cherubim, these royal attendants, these mysterious winged creatures who stand guard in the throne room of heaven. And we find, as we find, as we read about the curtain, that they're woven into it, into the walls, into the veil, into the outer curtains uh, that are around the tabernacle. So when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, God's sanctuary on earth, that high priest would have caught a glimpse of heaven on earth where God sits enthroned above the cherubim. The tabernacle taught the Hebrews about God's character. He is a mighty God attended by angels. He is a holy God shrouded in mystery. He is a loving God who wants to have a relationship with his people. He is a God who gives light and life, a God who provides daily bread, a God who answers prayer and who has revealed his law for his people's lives. And most of all, the tabernacle taught the people to look for God for the forgiveness of their sins. And that was the way to have access. We can see how all of this pointed ahead to Jesus Christ and what he did. But everything about the tabernacle signified the holy presence of God, a tremendous privilege for the Israelites. But that access to him was no easy matter. Doesn't it show us that? Most of the Israelites, when you think about it, were never allowed to enter the holy place, let alone the holy of holies. They only heard about it secondhand in some way. And and think of the symbolism of all the cherubim. The first mention of cherubim in Scripture is Genesis chapter 3, 
where Adam and Eve have sinned and where God drove the man out of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Shutting man out of the Garden of Eden and that fellowship with God that Adam and Eve had known. All this is designed to show the supreme holiness of God and that access to God is only according to his appointed way. And that way involved a representative carrying an atoning sacrifice for sin. Well, on this first point, just think of the spiritual application of all this. The God who dwelt in the tabernacle is the same God who lives and rules the universe today. And God's power hasn't changed. His holiness hasn't changed. His character has not changed. And we as human beings are still, apart from Christ, separated from him by our sins. And many people today in our world would say that they are on a spiritual quest They would say that they're on a spiritual journey, seeking spiritual knowledge, that they want to know some higher power or find God in some way. And maybe they even cry out to God, but he seems distant to them. They don't know if he's there. They don't know if he hears. They try all different ways of seeking after some kind of satisfaction or some kind of spiritual insight. Maybe some of you read the article in the newspaper the other week about the Sedona Vortices. Vortices is the plural of vortex, in case you're wondering. There are these in the beautiful valley of Sedona and Arizona, which Patty and I drove through on our trip to the Grand Canyon. Let's see. That was 32 years ago. I know because Merwin wasn't born yet. It's a stunningly beautiful place with these amazing rock formations. You can go online and just look at, at what it looks like. But apparently over the years, a, a mysterious tradition has developed, this tradition about the knowledge of the, these vortexes or these vortices that have been found by some at certain rock formations. There are four famous ones. And that if there is a spiritual vortex there, there's apparently this place of swirling energy conducive to spiritual healing or physical healing and meditation and communing with the powers, whatever they might be. In some sense, it is claimed a place where heaven touches earth. That was the theme of this article in our local newspaper a few years, a, 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 a few weeks ago. And as a result, for years now, people have been flocking to Sedona. I mean, it's a great vacation spot, pretty expensive, but... You take a spiritual journey and seek to get in touch with the supernatural by finding one of these. And you can buy or you can get a vortex map where all these renowned spots of heightened spiritual metaphysical energy can be found. I say all this hoping that you understand that I am not recommending that you seek these out, of course. I would put these phenomena in the same category as ancient pagan idols, In one sense, scripturally, Paul says they are nothing. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have no power at all. But in another sense, if there is any spiritual aspect, it would be demonic if there is power associated with them, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. 
And the reason I bring up that example is because it's kind of a, a modern example of heaven or so-called heaven touching earth. And the Bible and the teaching about the tabernacle tells us something about the only way to truly know God is the way that he has appointed. God makes it very clear what the Israelites were to build and how they were to do it. And this brings us to our second point. The tabernacle has been fulfilled in Jesus. What a wondrous truth. Jesus is the true tabernacle of God. He is the sacred space where heaven comes down to earth so that we can have true fellowship with God. Probably, as I even have said this, many of you thought about John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you probably know that that Greek word dwelt, he became flesh and dwelt among us. That's eskenosin. That word is the same Greek word as the word for tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? He tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We think of Matthew chapter 1 where Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The same idea. A tabernacle is a place where God dwells. And this is precisely what happened when God the Son became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. The body of Jesus Christ became the true and final tabernacle of God. Colossians 2.9, in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The tabernacle in the wilderness was built by human hands, we know. We hear it described. The skilled workers did this at God's direction, but not so the living tabernacle of Christ's body. God is the one who prepared a body for Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.5, Jesus, speaking of the Father, says, a body have you prepared for me. Jesus recognized that in his physical body, he would be able to do the whole work of our salvation. He could live a perfect, sinless life and offer a perfect, atoning sacrifice in his body. And that's what Jesus did. And just as God in Exodus pronounced his blessing on the finished product when the tabernacle was finally finished and God said that it had been done well and pronounced a blessing on that. So when Jesus completed his work by dying for our sins, God gave his clear blessing and benediction and a vindication of Jesus by raising him from the dead. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power. God's blessing and benediction upon what Jesus had done. And so if you desire to enter into a relationship with the true God, you are called by the gospel to trust Jesus Christ, the true tabernacle of your salvation. Maybe you know that the Bible tells us in Matthew 27 when it's describing Jesus dying on the cross in verses 50 and 51 and then in Mark 15 as well, that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple, now we're no longer in the tabernacle, we're in the temple that was a building in Jerusalem, the temple, that curtain, that same veil that separated the holiest place from the holy place, that curtain, we're 
told in Matthew, was torn in two from the top to the bottom by the mighty power of God through Jesus Christ, that signifies that Jesus was opening a new and living way to the Father. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the shock of the priests who were on duty that day? Can you imagine that great curtain, that heavy curtain, probably taller than 15 feet now, probably a lot taller than that. The temple was bigger now. Can you imagine it being ripped from the top to the bottom? That veil that for more than a thousand years had separated God's people from God's presence, it was torn in two. A, A monumental something had happened in human history. And we know that it was Jesus' death. And now the way has been opened for every believer to meet with God in the most holy place through faith in Jesus Christ. Simple faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, we read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The way to God is opened, not through Sedona vortices, but through the true tabernacle, Jesus Christ. What a gospel we have. What a God we have. What access we have. But I would make a final application to believers. Yes, if you don't know Christ, I hope you are seeing something of the beauty of how to come to him. But if you do know Christ, what do we do when we feel distant from God? What do we do when we drift away to some degree from our walk with the Lord? when we no longer have the same sense of access to God that we once might have had? What do we do when we are not warm to God in our worship or we find our hearts dull? And I'm describing normal Christian experience for all of us. There are ups and downs of the Christian life and experience. And the truth is so vital to understand that the way back to God is always through the access we have been given through Jesus Christ. Not that the true believer ever falls away, but in terms of our daily fellowship with him, the way back to God is always through Jesus Christ. It is never by our good works. It is always by clinging to Jesus Christ alone. In fact, Hebrews goes on in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. It goes on and describes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And it goes on to describe that. He's exhorting the believers who were having a difficult time. They were going through persecutions. They were struggling He was exhorting them to persevere, and he says, let us draw near. And that theme in Hebrews comes out again and again. The believer always has access to God through Jesus Christ. All we need to do is turn to him in humble 
repentance, and faith. Do we need forgiveness? There is abounding mercy at the mercy seat in Jesus Christ. Do we need comfort or peace or guidance? All of these spring from the hand of Jesus Christ as he shepherds us? Do we need strength or provision for daily needs or hope? Jesus is the source of all good things. When Abraham Lincoln, at age 32, became depressed to the very edge of death, his close friend Joshua Speed stayed by his side night and day for a period of weeks Lincoln's political life was in shambles because of the depression that had hit at that point and all that he had been trying to do was in shambles around him politically. His personal life was in seeming ruin as he had broken off his engagement to Mary Todd and the whole community knew about it. And day after day, Lincoln remained bedridden, unable to eat or sleep, unfit to carry out his duties in the state legislature in any way. And fellow lawyer Orville Browning wrote that Lincoln was, quote, delirious to the extent of not knowing what he was doing and that he was so much affected as to talk incoherently. He was at a very low point in his life. But with Joshua Speed by his side, Lincoln slowly started to recover Historians speculate as to the reasons. Was it his ambition? Was it, what was it exactly that helped him to overcome this? But my point is this. Every believer has a faithful and true Savior and friend in Jesus Christ, the one who brings us to God, the one who keeps us to himself, the one whose face we heard this morning, we will one day behold this friend who is the true tabernacle, the true dwelling place of God. And because of him, we as believers and we as the church corporately are the dwelling place of God as well. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous truth truth that is symbolized for us and pictured for us and illustrated for us that we cannot miss the major points of what you are saying to us. Thank you for making your truth so clear to us. Help us to take it to heart, to be encouraged, to be lifted up, to be strengthened in faith, to look to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.